You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Should the Bible believer ever go to war? I would like you to imagine that we could go back in time over 100 years to January 1913 and as Bible students we were sitting in a hall like this considering just such a subject should the Bible believer ever go to war. Now nobody over 108 years ago could have known what we now know in retrospect that within a year a whole train of events will be put into motion that would in just over 30 years leave Europe and the Russian Empire with an estimated 70 to 85 million people dead and with some 98 million injured all within 30 years of World War I and World War II and if you were to include all the figures across the surface of the globe it hardly bears thinking about over 108 years ago they could not have known the nature or the scale of what was about to engulf them therefore whatever the next 30 years or so holds for us I would suggest that it is crucial that all and especially the younger ones amongst us both male and female need to seriously take heed to our subject title should the Bible believer ever go to war you will notice that the title uses the words Bible believer in other words Christians now there are different ideas among those who would claim to be Bible believing Christians but because of the differences they cannot all be right we find that some would justify complete pacifism in any circumstance and others in the past at least were quite prepared during the Middle Ages to go off upon the Crusades looting killing raping and plundering all in the name of Jesus but more commonly between those two extremes there tends to be those who feel that in certain circumstances it might just possibly be right for the Bible believer to go to war for example the theologian and Bishop of Rome in North Africa Augustine helped develop the theory of the just war and he argued that the Christian state could use warfare as a last resort if for example it was in self-defense if it was to limit the spread of evil and if it was within certain limiting criteria and this was the situation in the last two wars that is the first and second world wars that Christians often found themselves fighting against other Christians 
So you would have Protestants fighting and killing Protestants, Catholics fighting and killing Catholics in defence of their own country. This led to the situation where God would be called upon by both sides and their respective priests for a blessing, for victory, as the soldiers went off to fight and kill each other. But a true Bible believer, a true Christian, will be one who follows the example and the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ, wherever that may lead them. A true Christian will refer to these scriptural principles that have been recorded and explained in the New Testament, which they regard correctly as being the inspired words of God. And any teachings such as the just war theory would need to be evaluated against the New Testament to know if it really is the true gospel. Well, it certainly is true that in the Old Testament of the Bible, there are accounts of battles, bloodshed, great acts of bravery. And in those far-off days, God allowed his people, the Jews, to defend themselves against their enemies. And sometimes he required them, with limitations, to attack other threatening nations. John the Baptist, who paved the way for Jesus, did not have the authority to challenge that status quo, but in our introductory reading for tonight's talk, in Matthew chapter 5, in what is sometimes called the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus Christ ushered in a completely new era for his followers. And this was to effect all believers from his day and onwards, and it still applies today. It was a very sweeping outlook. We read in our introductory reading together from Matthew chapter 5 and verse 38, these words of Jesus. Ye have heard, not written, ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whatsoever, whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. Verse 43, you've heard <coughs> that it hath been said, thou shalt love thy neighbour. Again, said, not written, thou shalt love thy neighbour and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. And for what reason? Verse 45, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. 
Notice in verse 45, talking about the true Bible believers being sons of the Father in heaven, that Jesus is expanding what he had already said earlier in this fifth chapter in verse 9 when he declared, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. So we find then that the true sons and daughters of God are identified as being peaceful under provocation from New Testament times and onwards. And in addition, these disciples were going to be sent out with Christ's new teaching. Jesus did not pretend that it was going to be easy for them. Over in Matthew chapter 10, and at verse 16, Jesus went on to say to his disciples, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. That's quite something to imagine, isn't it? Sheep in the midst of wolves. It was going to be something they would all experience. A lamb does not hurt anything. It can run away, but... If it's cornered, it is totally dependent on the protection of a shepherd. And that's the picture that Jesus paints here. It was going to be just like that for his disciples. But if violence is not permissible as self-defence, then what about the defence of others, of friends, of family, of rulers? What about fighting to protect one's cherished ideals? The disciples loved Jesus dearly and he meant all those things to, to them and they loved him more than their love of self, more than mother, more than father, sister, brother, daughter. To them in those first century days it was inconceivable that they shouldn't stand and defend Jesus. He was their friend and stood for everything they believed in. Over in Matthew 26, we find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane at night with his disciples. Matthew 26, verse 47, and where... Judas, one of the twelve, came and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. This armed band had come to arrest Jesus and in verse 51 it tells us what happened next. And behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priests and smote off his ear. And John chapter 18 and verse 10 tells us that it was the apostle Peter who cut off the servant's ear with the sword. Verse 52, then said Jesus unto them, put unto him, unto Peter, put up again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. 
Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father, and he shall present, presently give me more than twelve legion of angels? But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled, that thus it must be? So Jesus rebukes Peter for drawing a sword, and there's Peter fighting for justice and defending his friend. Compared to Old Testament times, Peter would have been considered truly a brave and courageous man of great faith for what he had done. But not anymore in the new era that was being brought in by Jesus. And this new teaching of non-resistance, this non-violence, was extremely traumatic for the disciples at the time. As a result... They all deserted Jesus and fled. But later, they came to accept his teaching and they taught it wherever they went. Over in the Gospel of John, chapter 18. In John, chapter 18, Jesus is explaining his lack of resistance to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. The Roman governor of Judea who served under the Emperor Tiberius. And reading at verse 36, John 18, Jesus answered, Pontius Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world, that is, not of this age or this time. Because if my kingdom were of this world, this age, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews? But now is my kingdom not from thence, hence. Jesus then is a king. That is, he is a king, but not of this present order of things, not of this age. His authority and his power are to be given him at the appropriate time in God's time and purpose. And this comes to him from heaven, which is not from this present world of nations or rulers. The Bible teaches that in God's eyes there are just two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of men. And the true Bible believer, the true Christian, is a citizen of the kingdom of God. Or as it is sometimes called, especially in Matthew's Gospel, the kingdom of heaven. They do not belong to a kingdom which is part of this present world order. And this is confirmed by Jesus in one chapter earlier, in John chapter 17, where we have Jesus speaking here to God in prayer. Concerning his disciples, John 17, verse 14, where he says, I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, verse 15, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. Verse 18, 
As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. Jesus then clearly expects his followers to act like non-resisting lambs amongst wolves, just as he had shown them by his own example in his conduct before the Jews and before Pontius Pilate, when he was falsely put on trial for his life. This is what he expects from his followers today, if they are true Bible believers. Jesus would begin to conquer evil in this way by serving God, by obedience, by prayer, and by non-resistance to evil and violence. And he was also showing that his disciples were to follow the same path and to overcome evil in their lives with good in this present age. Jesus did not say that warfare had always been wrong, for example, in Old Testament times. In fact, and as we have previously seen, he said to Pontius Pilate in the next chapter of John 8, chapter 18 and at verse 36, if my kingdom were of this age, then would my servants fight. Then they would have defended him. The Bible believer is not a pacifist. When Jesus returns to set up his kingdom, if needed, they will fight. But meanwhile, and since New Testament times, through to our own day, the battle against evil has been shown to us in the life of Jesus. In the past, the battle against evil was always going on. Think of Israel's king of ancient days, David, fighting Goliath. Think of Joshua in Jericho. It was again good versus evil. But now, what Jesus is saying is that the, con the conflict is not a physical one. It is not a situation of a flesh and blood struggle against flesh and blood, but it is a battle against evil which is all too human in origin. It is the conflict that is to be fought against the evil that we as human beings find daily in ourselves and in those around us. It is a battle against spiritual ignorance, the spiritual ignorance that can distort the thinking of the minds in this dark and degenerate age that we live in. And it can so easily distort our own thinking too. When we look at history, it's easy to see that in economics, in politics, in religion, and even within families, the forces of selfishness and ignorance reap absolute havoc. Let's go over to the epistle of James chapter 4 to illustrate this point. And here we have James writing to those first century believers who thought they were Christians and where he succinctly got to the source of their and our problem. James chapter 4 and verse 1, where he says, From whence comes wars and fightings amongst you? 
came, come they not hence, even of your own, even of your lust that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill, and ye desire to have and cannot obtain, ye fight and war. Jesus wanted his disciples to address this struggle against evil by starting off with the same evil that they found in their own human nature, to start with themselves and to try and lovingly help others to make the same efforts. After Jesus went to heaven, the disciples took the teaching of the gospel along with this non-violence message all the way around the Jewish and Roman world. And it's the very same message that we have recorded in the New Testament of our Bibles today. Turning back to the letter to the Roman believers in Romans chapter 12, there is an example of this. And we have Christ's Apostle Paul writing to those first century believers in Rome, those followers of Christ, just as he was, in verse 17, where Rome was the military centre of the world at that time, Romans 12, and starting to read at verse 17, and, and here we, we find him saying the same as Jesus did. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Don't retaliate. One of the most difficult characteristics to develop. Provide, he goes on, things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as life in you, live peaceably with all men. Verse 19, dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, and this is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35. It is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. So Paul, citing here from Deuteronomy, is where God declares that he has the authority to determine the final matters of life and guarantees the protection of his people. Therefore, when we have exhausted all efforts to live at peace, as exhorted to in the previous verse just read, then God will avenge our cause in accordance with his own will and in his own time. Verse 20, he continues, Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. The apostle does not mean that we are to be comforted for our kindness by knowing that our enemy will possibly be punished. This would be a malicious motive and an attitude utterly contrary to the true meaning of love. Paul's analogy is taken from the method of melting ore. Fire was not only placed underneath the metal, but piled on top as well. And the intense heat melted, therefore, that which was normally most difficult to forge. So to heap coals of fire on one's head is to subject our enemy 
to the treatment of kind actions. Such help might just melt the hard-hearted. If not, the divine anger will eventually consume them if there is no repentance. We see here that what the Apostle Paul is saying is exactly the same teaching as the Lord Jesus Christ and the other Apostles to overcome evil with good. Because he goes on to say in verse 21, be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Good can overcome evil, but it is also possible for evil to overcome good. Therefore, it is important to carefully analyse our motives and so conduct ourselves as a right as Bible believers. Back in the Apostles' day, if you were a Roman soldier becoming a Christian and there were some who believed, you'd have to quickly change your career, wouldn't you? If your enemy was hungry and you had to feed him, then this would not be a very good idea if you were besieging a city, would it? And remember that within a decade of these words going out to the believers at Rome, the legionaries were marching towards the direction of Jerusalem to destroy the city. And somebody who had become a Christian could in no way be part of that violence. So much then for the teaching of the disciples, but what about their practice? We certainly find in history that, as well as in the Bible, that they really practiced what they preached. That they were like lambs among savage wolves. They were attacked and abused by Jews and by Gentiles, even by civic authorities. We're going to look at some more inspired words of the Apostle Paul. The next letter from Romans and at 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and at verse 11. And here we have some words where Paul is describing what it was like to be a Bible believer moving amongst people who were hostile to them as a first century Christian. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 11. Even unto this present hour, he says, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place. And labour, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless and being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the offscouring of all things unto this day. They overcame evil with good. Their self-restraint impressed many and it won over a large number of Bible believers to the call of the true Christian gospel. And there's logic in the commandments of Jesus because the gospel went out to the nations, to all people, regardless of social boundaries like status or nationality. Bible believers must be able to see beyond the fault lines that normally separate humanity, especially when tensions occur. Can we now look at the letter to the Galatians, which is the next book after Corinthians? 
Galatians chapter 3. And here the Apostle Paul was speaking about what it is to be a Bible believer and how it affects our feelings of nationality and more than nationality as well. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptised have into Christ have put on Christ. Paul continues, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond, that is a slave, nor free. There is neither male or female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. As we have said, during conflict, people normally take sides. And in those days, it may well have been Jews against Romans. It might have been slaves against their masters. In the last century, it would have been perhaps the Germans against the English people. But the Bible believer cannot be involved in such strife if we are all one in Christ Jesus. Then how could a Jewish believer take up arms against the Roman believer when both are to be citizens of the kingdom of God? So from the first century through, this, the teaching and example of Jesus nationally became, or their nationalities became irrelevant. Jesus had said that if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And as the Bible shows, the kingdoms of this world are hopelessly divided against each other. And they will inevitably and certainly be brought to destruction and fall. The coming kingdom of God on earth, however, will never be divided. It reaches out, even now, to include all nationalities. So Jesus has told us, do not resist evil. But then we start to approach on the practicalities that inevitably arise, don't we? What about the problems of wrongdoers in society? If no one takes action to oppose evil, then how could all sorts of criminals, terrorists and murderers be dealt with? Wouldn't there be a total breakdown of law and order leading eventually and ultimately to even that of society itself? Both the Old Testament and the New Testament present the set of circumstances that there is a God who deals with evil and that usually he uses humans to do so. For example, in the Old Testament, prophets, priests and kings were appointed by him to uphold law and order. Over in the New Testament we find that God has allowed the kingdoms of this world to rule themselves. Therefore the rulers of this world, whether they accept it or not, are ultimately all under 
the control of God. And consequently, they will be accountable to him. Let's look at Romans chapter 13, where again Paul is writing to believers. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Remember that when the Apostle Paul was writing this, that the fifth Roman emperor, who reigned 54 to 68 AD, that he was on the throne. And if this is true of Nero, then it must be true of any other ruler. Romans 13, verse 1, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. We go down to verse 4. For he that decreed power is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. <coughs> in ordinary circumstances then, the subjects of the coming kingdom of God on earth are to act as law-abiding citizens under the shelter of the governing authority of the day, wherever they may live. These authorities will carry out justice and, no doubt, they will fight their own wars for their own nefarious purposes. But for those who are Bible believers, it is, as the Lord Jesus Christ said and recorded in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verse 17, that we must render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God's, to God the things that are God's. And normally this is doable. The things that the authorities require of us are things that we can do in good conscience. But just supposing that we must make a choice between allegiance to the rulers of the land or God because of our sincerely held conscience towards him. Now Jesus said also elsewhere, no man can serve two masters. And jumping back to the book of the Acts of the Apostles, we find an example of where this very situation arose. In chapter eight, uh, 5 of Acts, Acts chapter 5 verse 28, we find the Apostle Peter and the other disciples, John included, in the temple... And they'd been ordered by the Jewish authorities not to preach anything concerning Jesus. It's a little bit ironic, isn't it, really, that the high priest and the Jewish elders should command this, but they did. Acts chapter 5, I'm reading from verse 28. This is the high priest speaking. Did, did we not strictly command you, the disciples, that you should not teach in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. God always has priority over our rulers 
And if there is ever a clash of allegiance, then we must obey God rather than men. And since, as we have seen, the Lord Jesus Christ has instructed his servants to refrain from violence, then should there ever be military, a military call-up in this country, it would be necessary to petition the authorities to obtain exemption from joining their armed forces, military or non-combatant, and not to take part in any circumstances or assist in furthering the violence of the state in whatever country it may be. They will have to fight each other under their own rules. History shows that the very early Christians did obey the Lord Jesus Christ's commands. They took no part in violence or warfare. And this situation lasted for one and a half centuries after the death of the New Testament apostles. I'm going to quote some of the words of Tertullian, who was an early Christian author from Carthage, which was a Roman province of Africa, who wrote in 211 AD in his treatise on idolatry, and this is what Tertullian says, how will a Christian man go to war? Indeed, how will he serve even in peacetime without a sword which the Lord has taken away? And that is the conscientious objection, the hallmark, if you like, that Christadelphians have always taken upon themselves up and until this day and in every circumstance. However, as history shows, the early official church began to compromise this teaching as they began to alter the key beliefs which the early Bible believers had been given to them by the Lord Jesus Christ. And as the official church and the state merged closer and closer together, Christianity was finally swallowed up by the world and became a part of the world's system of things and nothing to do with Christ. By then it was okay for Augustine, with whom we started with, and with others to develop and promote their ideas of a just war, because by then the church and the state had common interests which, as we have seen, were not in a line with true scriptural teaching. The church stopped being true Bible believers once they compromised theirs and their flock's beliefs, given them by the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, the church itself became the persecutor of the remaining true Bible believers who would not serve in the emperor's armies against the Romans' emperor, the Roman, Romans enemies, the barbarians. Once again, Bible believers found themselves outside the camp and at odds with society. They were often called heretics, apostates, unbelievers, and worse. Can we turn to Hebrews chapter 13? <coughs> And this takes us once again back to the position of Jesus. In Hebrews 13, verse 12, we read that Jesus said, 
Sorry, we read that Jesus suffered without the gate. And what for? In order that he might sanctify the people with his own blood. And we're exhorted to do this. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach, for here we have no continuing city, but seek one to come. But that's not like how we like that's not like how we we want to feel, is it? We we don't like to be an outsider, to be left outside the camp. We we can feel lonely, isolated or vulnerable by not belonging. But a Bible believer must always remember that whatever happens, we are not on our own. And Jesus had some words both of comfort and challenge to those who find themselves in such a predicament. Matthew 10, verse 28, he said, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, the life. But rather fear him, that is God, which is able to destroy both soul, the breath of life, and body in hell, in Gehenna. Verse 30, that the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Whatsoever therefore, whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my father, he said. But let us not be simplistic about this. Jesus knew that many of those who were listening to him, that followed him, would also be put to death for their beliefs. But he was promising them the strength to endure and the certainty of an eternal, immortal, future life, if found worthy in the coming kingdom of God with him upon this earth. Of course, to obey Jesus requires faith. And the Apostle Paul was inspired to write God's words to encourage the believers at Rome with these words. So then, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And that is why it is really important that we keep reading the inspired word of God contained within our Bibles, which has been preserved for us today. And it's by this means and applying its life-saving messages that our faith can grow to the degree that it can be a faith that can overcome the evils of the world. As we read, the Bible, page after page, shows us that God is in control of the rise and the fall of nations. And so it's not necessary for Bible, a Bible believer to worry whether a Russian or Chinese attack comes upon us here in this country. Or maybe somebody else over there or who plans and executes their terrorist atrocities. Because the outcome is ultimately and completely left in God's hands. 
God channels their ambitions, the rebellions and the schemes of the nations and various groups, even individuals, all to his ultimate purpose with man upon this planet. And he will eventually bring all things in this world to good for those that love him. As Paul also previously wrote, we know that all things, ultimately, all things worked together for good to them that love God. Now there's, there are many passages which will put everything into place for us, but I'd like to just read three critical quotations to finalise our thoughts tonight. The first is Acts chapter 17, verse 26, and here again we have the Apostle Paul at Athens in Greece telling us through inspiration about God who created all things and we can learn some important lessons. That is not to worry ourselves about politics, war, defence or any such things like this. Acts 17 verse 26 because the Creator hath made of one blood, that is from Adam, all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. And he, God, hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, where they live. So as far as we are concerned, it's all in God's hands if we develop faith in God and his purpose discovered in the Bible. Our final two closing quotations come from the prophet Daniel. Daniel 4 and at the second half of verse 25 where we read the most high ruleth in the kingdom of men. We said there are two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of men. And here the most high ruleth in the kingdom of men and it says giveth it to whomsoever he will. So if strange people or given these kingdoms, if there's a Biden or a Boris or whoever you do or don't like, it's all the will of God. And the final one, Daniel 2 verse 44, and this is the message that we should take to heart for ourselves because this is something that is going to occur very soon upon this planet. Daniel 2 verse 44, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. So when we think about these things we can see how important it is that we do not get drawn in, into joining in with any wars or conflicts between nations because we would not like to find ourselves fighting against the purpose of God himself. Because we have a different war to rage, wage, and it's a war primarily against our own nature. The real question is, will we win this battle? So we leave on the screen for you the scriptural references for our Christadelphian conscientious objections to war and I know that uh, you won't be able to read these all now but they will be available on the video recording that is being made we hope 
of this talk. So thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.